I, Robert Southall, Catholic priest of the Holy Roman Church and of the Society of Jesus, humbly desire Almighty God to take and accept this my death, my last farewell to this miserable and unfortunate life, and yet to me most happy and most fortunate. I pray it may be for the full satisfaction of my sins, for the good of my country, and for the comfort of many others, which death, albeit seem here disgraceful, yet I hope that in time to come it will be to my eternal glory. Behold the head of a traitor! I, Charles Blunt, Earl of Devonshire, and 8th Lord Mountjoy, at Tyburn, London, on this 21st day of February, in the year of our Lord, 1595, did witness the execution of the Jesuit priest and poet, Robert Suttle. And I never saw any man die better. I knew Robert Suttle. He was born two years before me, in 1561 in Horsham, St. Faith, Norfolk. The youngest of a family of eight, all brought up as Catholics by their mother Bridget. This was a difficult and dangerous thing to do, especially since his father was quite prominent in the court of Queen Elizabeth. At the time, there were strict laws against unofficial foreign travel, but when he was only 14, Robert was sent to study at the Catholic seminary in Douai in Flanders. Sir Richard couldn't have been too happy. The school at Dwey was run by Father William Allen as a training camp for English priests. They believed England was in a godless pagan state. It was their duty to save it. Robert was caught up in all that, and soon he wanted to become a Jesuit. He and a friend, Thomas Deckers, applied for admission into the Jesuit novitiate. Deckers was accepted, but Robert was told to wait. He persisted and in 1578 he was received into the novitiate at Saint André in Rome. Why did he join the Jesuits? I, I suppose that he, his friend had a big influence on him, but most of all perhaps their reputation. They, they, they remember that Southall was born five years after the death of Ignatius Loyola. It's one of the periods of extraordinary expansion in the numbers in the order. It, it was the order that was creating all sorts of uh, new initiatives in Europe and around the world. Uh, the reputations of people like Francis Xavier and so on were just hugely famous in, in Europe in that day. And therefore it, it, it was joining an order that seemed to be the leader of the apostolate and of the church at that time. As my aim in entering religion was that by constant mortification of self and by submitting myself to all men for Christ's sake, I might become as like my crucified Saviour as I could, 
and use every endeavour to attain to his love. And as my aim in choosing the Society of Jesus in preference to other religious orders or congregations was that I might not only have the opportunity of carrying out these objects, but in addition labour with all my strength for the salvation of my fellow men. I am absolutely certain and convinced that my vocation to the religious life in general and to the society in particular is verily from Almighty God, and therefore, if I would not impiously resist the will of God, I must cling to it with all my care and gratitude to the very last moment of my life. Let fickle fortune run her blindest race. I settled have an unremoved mind. I scorn to be the game of fancy's chase, or vain to show the change of every wind. Light giddy humours stinted to no rest, still change their choice, yet never choose the best. My choice was guided by foresightful heed, it was averred with approving will, it shall be followed with performing deed, and sealed with vow, till death the chooser kill. Yea, death, though final date of vain desires, ends not my choice, which with no time expires. To beauty's fading bliss I am no thrall, I bury not my thoughts in metal minds, I aim not at such fame as feareth fall, I seek and find a light that ever shines, whose glorious beams display such heavenly sights as yield my soul the sum of all delights. My light to love, my love to life doth guide, to life that lives by love and loveth light. By love of one to whom all loves are tied by Jewest debt and never equaled right. Eyes light, heart's love, soul's truest life he is, consorting in three joys, one perfect bliss. So young Robert threw himself body and soul into the Jesuit life. He lived the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola. He felt the flames of missionary zeal fanned by the news from England, where priests were hunted, tortured and executed. Cuthbert Maine was executed in 1577, Jasper Haywood was tortured and exiled, and Edmund Campion was martyred in 1581. When they were in Douai, of course, they were very near England, so that they were constantly meeting visitors and hearing news from abroad, and I think they saw a number of visitors who would not have been Catholics at all. Then when they were in Rome, of course, they were that much further away, but they were constantly trying to keep up their morale, and uh, of course there were these uh, there was this famous custom of uh, the entire uh, house assembling to sing a Te Deum whenever they heard that one of their missionaries had been executed in England. They were preparing themselves consciously for martyrdom. They even had very gory pictures of English martyrs being done in in their dining room uh, for some time as they ate their breakfasts. Robert was ordained a Jesuit priest in 1584. The same year it was enacted by Queen Elizabeth that any native-born subject of the Queen who had been ordained a Roman Catholic priest since the first year of her accession in 1558 and resided in the country more than 40 days was guilty of treason and incurred the penalty of death. But Suttle was determined to return to England. He too longed for a martyr's crown. Let toil come, let come chains, imprisonment, torture, the cross of Peter and Andrew, the gridiron of Lawrence, the flare of Bartholomew, the lions of Ignatius, all things in a word which can possibly come. 
Indeed, my dearest Jesus, I pray from my heart that they may come. And by thy wounds and the sufferings of thy saints, by thy merits and by theirs, I most humbly beg that they may begin now, at this very moment when I am writing and last until the very end of my life. For thy sake, allow me to be tortured, mutilated, scourged, slain and butchered. I refuse nothing. I will embrace all, not indeed I, dust and ashes as I am, but thou, Lord, in me. I think he probably had a wish to be a martyr from a very early age. His original wish, of course, was to go and evangelize the Indians. Uh, he had wanted to, in, to be a, a, a missionary. Uh, I don't know that he was very particular whether it was in America or India itself that he was going to go f and find these Indians. But the uh, idea of traveling as a missionary was in his mind from the very beginning. Um, and I suppose just hanging around in Rome, being part of the machinery of the Jesuit order, uh, being part of its uh, educational enterprises and, of course, its political intrigues, wouldn't have been perhaps that attractive to somebody who had always wanted a life of adventure. He certainly got one. Yes, I, I think they were in no doubt that they were in for a huge adventure, as it were, and that it was a dangerous mission and rather like people going nowadays, say, to difficult areas of Latin America and volunteering for places where there are dictatorships and priests are tortured and perhaps killed or thrown out of the country, as happens in Paraguay or Chile and so on, it, that the, the young English people joining the Jesuits in those days relished something of that danger and there was great esprit de corps among them. After all, something like a quarter if not a third of priests who set foot on English soil in those days did become martyrs so it, you know, it was, it was a, a goodly chance. He was on to a safe, well a really reasonably safe bet and, and because he was so famous and because the great priest chaser Richard Topcliffe set out uh, over years to capture him. It was great cat and mouse game. Uh, therefore, I think he knew increasingly that he would never see uh, the continent again, that he would die someday in England. After many letters and petitions, Robert was given permission to join the English mission. He left Rome in May of 1586 with another Jesuit, Henry Garnet, and like two arrows shot at the same target, they travelled north and west. From Calais, he wrote to his friend, Thomas Deckers. I am sent indeed into the midst of wolves, would that it were as a sheep to be led to the slaughter, in the name of and for him who sends. Truly, I well know that many with open mouths stand gaping for me, both on sea and land, not as wolves only, but as lions that go about seeking whom they may devour, whose fangs I less fear than desire them. Nor do I so much dread tortures, as look forward to the crown. He had strict instructions from the Jesuit general on how to behave. The members of the Society of Jesus assigned to the English mission are not to mix themselves in affairs of state, nor should they recount news about political matters in their letters to Rome or to England. And in England, they are to refrain from talk against the queen and not to allow it in others. There certainly is no evidence that he was involved in any of the rather seamy dealings of a lot of his contemporaries, co-religionists, and of course his colleagues in the Jesuit order. I mean, even though he was 
acquainted, for example, with Robert Persons. He never seems to have actually got involved in a person's political wheeling and dealing. And it would seem that he genuinely wanted to be a priest in England and to minister to the English people. That was what he, that was his, it was his vocation. And I'm sure he saw his poetry as one side of that vocation. Francis Walsingham's spies told of Robert's arrival on the 7th of July. But the court of Queen Elizabeth could be little bothered by the presence of a pair of outlawed priests. They had landed near Dover, and so, after ten years, Father Robert Suttle set foot once again on his native soil. The adventure had begun. On a high bluff overlooking the beach, we caught sight of a man. He was scrutinising us carefully, and obviously asking himself, who are these people who had landed at this unusual place so far from the harbour? I must say we felt a thrill of fear. However, the die was cast, and we must try our luck, which we knew was not mere luck, but the watchful appointment of divine goodness. So we walked straight up to him, and began to complain gravely about our boatman, who had put us down in the wrong place and left us there. The man, who was some sort of shepherd and a very honest fellow, was most indignant at the wrong done to us, much more indignant than we were. He described to us at length the places round about and the right way to get to them, and he assured us that he felt towards us as if we had been his own kith and kin, and this he confirmed with a very hearty oath. So our first adventure was a merry one. They managed to make their way up to London and report to their new superior, Father William Weston. He introduced them to the fervent Catholic faithful. The general atmosphere was very much more contemplative, spiritual, pastoral, they were there to serve the Catholic uh, remnant in England, the, the persecuted remnant of Catholics. Uh, they were looked on with enormous hope by those Catholics. Uh, it was a great, uh, great event when, when a new priest or a new Jesuit would arrive. Suttle was accepted into the finest Catholic houses in England. Lord Vox welcomed him. So did Richard Bold, where he met the Queen's musician, William Byrd, and by Philip Howard, the Earl of Arundel. He was impressed by the literary, musical and artistic activity in the capital. He noticed how the poetry of Philip Sidney, Walter Raleigh, the Earl of Oxford, and many others was widely circulated. Suttle saw what a powerful force poetry had become in Elizabeth's England. He decided to launch a literary mission to win men's souls with poems. He says that in his uh, letter to his cousin, and he says that he has to uh, weave a new web in the old loom. He has to, if you like, make religious poetry follow the rules or uh, imitate secular poetry. And it's interesting because there were serious writers before him who were religious people, who were Protestants, but who couldn't really see any way of writing religious poetry. Sir Philip Sidney, for example, uh, almost says that he that religious poetry is impossible, although he and his sister translated the Psalms into English. But uh, they couldn't apparently make the imaginative leap from translation, which is uh, a scholarly task as much as anything else, to writing original poems on religious themes. And then when you look 40 years later after Southwell, Anybody, it would seem, can write a religious poem. It, it, it had been, Southwell had shown how it could be done. One thing one can certainly say about him was that he was aware that English people wanted to read religious poetry and there was no religious poetry for them to read uh, until he came along. 
So he may be counted as the beginning of a great movement of writing religious poetry, uh, which includes the poetry of Don George Herbert, Cat Grashaw, Vaughan. I suppose Don and Herbert are the best known of them. He was an effective poet then. He also, of course, has got a very good, plain style. Um, I think he was writing on devotional themes deliberately rather than controversial themes. He was writing poems uh, about subjects in the New Testament, for example, which would have uh, appealed to a wide audience, people who uh, wanted poetry on religious themes but didn't want poetry about the rows between Catholics and Protestants. Late in 1586, things suddenly turned the worse for Catholics. Antony Babington and a few henchmen hatched a mad plot to kill Queen Elizabeth and put Mary Queen of Scots on the throne. The entire realm, Catholic and Protestant, were outraged. Babington and his men were executed. Hundreds of Catholics were imprisoned. Brutal fines were imposed. The ill-fated plot convinced Elizabeth that Mary Stuart must be eliminated. Mary Queen of Scots was executed in 1587. The war with Spain loomed large in the shape of the Armada and Roman Catholicism was at its lowest ebb in England. Nevertheless, Robert Suttle continued to work, bringing hope and solace to distressed Catholic households. And yet the faith is still alive. The church exults. The families are not falling away. The work of God is being pressed forward often enough by delicate women who have taken on the courage of men. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so also through Christ abounds our consolation. Only priests are lacking. It is clear and certain that whatever storms are raging, the bark of Peter is moving forward and moving steadily, and very many are seeking access to her. Oh, let them come then, those who are to come, so that the fruits of our toil may be greater. In 1588, Robert moved into Arundel House on the Strand, the London residence of the Countess of Arundel. He assumed the position of chaplain and confessor to Anne Dacres, the wife of Philip Howard, the Earl of Arundel. He was a prisoner in the Tower for allegedly supporting the Armada. Robert wrote letters of comfort to Howard, as well as giving much-needed spiritual guidance to his wife. It obviously was a, a, a very extraordinary and intimate relationship in that he was writing letters to Philip Howard in the Tower uh, and yet uh, he was writing letters of very intense uh, advice and consolation without having met him. And uh, in this, of course, he's following on um, English tradition of Catholic writing uh, following, for example, the tradition of Sir Thomas More's Dialogue of Comfort, his Epistle of Comfort to, Southwood's Epistle of Comfort to Howard in the Tower, I think undoubtedly does draw on that. Uh, it's very far from unusual, of course, to find uh, important relationships between uh, women who were in Anne Dacre's position and their chaplains, the, the, the wish to have a guide, somebody that they could trust uh, and often somebody who was, because of celibacy, so to speak, at a certain remove from them. Robert was kept hidden in an unused attic in Arundel House. Whenever it was safe, he emerged to perform his duties as a priest. Long hours he spent in his solitary confinement. He wrote many letters and pamphlets, and, of course, his poetry, which provided great comfort for his patron and landlady, as well as for his faithful flock, especially 
at Christmas time. As I, in hoary winter's night, stood shivering in the snow, surprised I was with sudden heat, which made my heart to glow. And lifting up a fearful eye to view what fire was near, a pretty babe, all burning bright, did in the air appear, who, scorched with excessive heat, such floods of tears did shed, as though his floods should quench his flames, which with his tears were fed. Alas, quoth he, but newly born in fiery heats I fry, yet none approach to warm their hearts or feel my fire but I. My faultless breast the furnace is, the fuel wounding thorns, love is the fire and sighs the smoke, the ashes shame and scorns. The fuel justice layeth on, and mercy blows the coals, the metal in this furnace wrought are men's defiled souls. For which, as now on fire I am, to work them to their good, so will I melt into a bath to wash them in my blood. With this he vanished out of sight, and swiftly shrunk away, and straight I called it unto mind that it was Christmas Day. The poem is about not just about a vision, it's about the effect on the uh, person who has the vision. Surprised I was with sudden heat, which made my heart to glow. Uh, that's the object of the poem, to make the reader's heart glow, to remind him of the meaning of Christmas Day. And that's what the poem has achieved by the time that it gets to its end. Uh, also, of course, it's a poem not just about Christmas Day, about the scene in the crib, uh, the mother and child, and the ox and the ass. It is instead a poem about the theological significance of Christmas Day, the doctrine of the incarnation, and the fact that Christmas Day looks forward to Christ's death. So he says, uh, for which as now on fire I am, to work them to their good, so will I melt into a bath to wash them in my blood. And again, we were talking about the diction of this poetry. That's four lines entirely composed of monosyllables, of it's uh, the most basic English. Uh, there's nothing in the least uh, fancy or difficult about it. And yet it doesn't seem as if the poet is trying too hard to be plain either, because his ideas are fairly complicated, but his language is direct. Many poets opted for a plain style in this age. Uh, Sidney, almost exactly contemporary. Fulk Revel, who seems to me to be very close indeed to the style of Southern. Uh, someone like Dunn or Herbert later on. Uh, ben Johnson to a famous degree. So side by side with the ornate school to which Spencer would largely belong, uh, there is a plain style school. And many of the more religious-based poets deliberately chose to write in a simpler style as more befitting for a religious topic. And there, I think you find both in Southall, but in general, you, he, 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 he seems to choose the plainer style, uh, a, mor a moralizing style, uh, very eloquent in its own way, but packed with matter. I think it n is never intended to be read as a real experience, of course. It's intended to be a fiction which the reader immediately sees through. Uh, 
he sees this emblem of a burning babe and he immediately asks what does this mean and he gets an explanation and the explanation is of course in terms of erotic poetry you know the furnace burning in the heart the furnace of love and the storms of tears which the babe is simultaneously shedding um i think that that is rather uh, a poem of uh, which which makes use of well-known imagery uh, to do which was used for love poetry and had also been used already in religious poetry rather than claiming to be a mystical experience there's only one poem of his that gets into any of the anthologies in ucd in recent years we have used two anthologies of english literature the norton and the oxford and they give one poem and one poem only of subtle and needless to say it's the burning babe so that even a fairly specialist student of English literature, at least in this institution, would be unlikely to have heard of Southall at all, number one, or if at all, just of one short poem. So he's relatively unknown. Uh, inside the Jesuits, he might be better known as a martyr than as a poet. He might be better known for the extraordinary adventure of his career as a young man leading towards death and it is a uh, dramatic and powerful story uh, his poetry i don't imagine younger jesuits would know any poems other than the burning babe they just might know peter's complaint but it's a long poem and i doubt if they know it all um but his life in some ways is is a poem six years, Robert Suttle worked in London, looking after the Catholic brethren. He gave them the sacraments, preached to them, counselled and consoled them, and always, always writing. He made occasional visits to the country, avoiding capture by the priest hunters, called the pursuivants, by assuming disguises and using the hiding holes for priests in the Catholic houses. It was a perilous time. Twice I was in extreme danger. The pursuivants were raging all around and seeking me in the very house in which I was lodged. I heard them threatening and breaking woodwork and sounding the walls to find hiding places. Yet, by God's goodness, after four hours' search they found me not, though separated from them only by a thin partition rather than a wall. Of a truth, the house was in such sort watched for many nights together that I perforce slept in my clothes in a very straight, uncomfortable place. In this wise, while we are yet free, we are trained to bear confinement. Yet in the midst of perils it is marvellous how good God is, and how bountiful of his comforts, insomuch as danger itself groweth sweet. There was one priest hunter in Walsingham's employ, a loathsome creature called Richard Topcliffe, who hunted priests like a jackal. 
In the years after the defeat of the Armada, Topcliffe busied himself rounding up Catholics and priests. He was so diligent and ruthless that public opinion began to turn. After all, it was only about some people wanting to hear the Mass on occasion. Now that Babington and his crew had been killed off, English Catholics could openly profess their loyalty to the Queen. But priests were still outlawed, and Topcliffe hunted them relentlessly. Subtle managed to remain at large, but the net was closing. I am living and daily moving about in the very mouth of hell, where it is almost impossible for one to stay without being forthwith devoured. As yet, however, such is God's kindness, I walk in freedom and without chains, though in darkness and in the shadow of death. In 1592, Richard Topcliffe seduced and corrupted a Catholic prisoner of his called Anne Bellamy. This unfortunate woman was forced to set a trap for Suttle. On the pretext of saying mass for a number of the faithful, Robert was lured out of London to her brother's house at Uxenden, where Topcliffe was waiting to take his greatest prize, the famous Jesuit Suttle. Robert was brought to Topcliffe's house in Westminster Courtyard. He was taken to a big upright pillar, one of the wooden posts which held the roof of a huge underground chamber. Robert had his wrists put into iron gauntlets, and he was ordered to climb two or three wicker steps. His arms were then lifted up, and an iron bar was passed through the rings of one gauntlet. This done, Topcliffe fastened the bar with a pin to prevent it slipping, and then he removed the wicker steps one by one from under Robert's feet. He was left hanging by his hands and arms, fastened above his head. Hanging like this, I began to pray. The gentleman standing around me asked whether I was willing to confess now. I cannot, and I will not, I answered. But I could hardly utter the words. Such a gripping pain came over me. It was worst in my chest and belly, my hands and arms. All the blood in my body had seemed to rush up into my arms and hands, and I thought that blood was oozing out from the ends of my fingers and the pores of my skin. But it was only the sensation caused by my flesh swelling above the irons holding them. The pain was so intense that I thought I could not possibly endure it. Antiquity boasts of its Roman heroes and the patience of their captives under their torture. But our own time was not inferior to theirs nor would English courage yield to Roman. This new abominable torture I thought impossible for any man to bear. Yet I saw Robert Suttle hanging by it still as a tree trunk, and no one able to drag one word from his mouth. He could be induced by Topcliffe to confess nothing, not even the colour of the horse he rode on a certain day, for fear he might reveal what houses or what Catholics he had visited that day. Topcliffe lost patience. At one stage he hoisted Robert's legs behind his back fastened them there and left him hanging in this dreadful state. A servant saw that the prisoner was near death and called for Topcliffe. When Suttle was revived, he coughed up a great quantity of blood, but still he would tell Topcliffe nothing. Robert's father, Sir Richard, begged the Queen to show mercy. She approved a request to have him sent to the Tower, where Robert was confined in more civilised quarters. He was to be kept prisoner for two and a half years. He couldn't write, 
he was refused pen and ink. He was allowed only the Bible and the works of St. Bernard to read. His only visitors were his sister and from time to time myself. I knew him to be a true and loyal subject and a good man. His only offence being a Jesuit priest and staying in the country. Law is law. But I felt pity for him. What good can be got from killing priests and poets? And indeed, in recent years, poets have been martyred. In Latin America, there is a famous uh, martyr of the very many who have been martyred, Jesuit or non-Jesuit of recent years, called Luis Espinal. And he wrote quite a few poems. And just like Southall, his poems have had a certain acclaim after his death precisely because they are the poems of a martyr, of someone who was killed because he sided with the poor just as Southall was killed because he sided with the suppressed or oppressed Catholics who were the poor, if you like, in England of his time. I think the, the great rage against Catholics was dying down, really, when he was executed in 1595. If it had been a couple of years earlier, they might have enjoyed it more. But also, he had not been convicted of any crime except having been born in England, having been ordained a priest abroad, and having come back to England. That was his crime, and probably the Elizabethan populace in London would not have regarded that as a very terrible crime, not one that merited a death like his. On February the 18th, 1595, Robert Suttle was brought for trial at his own request. He felt useless in the tower. He wanted to draw attention to himself once more. A trial would be his pulpit, but Topliffe had other ideas. That same year, there was an assassination attempt on Henry IV of France by a Jesuit pupil. The Jesuits were expelled from France, and anti-Jesuit propaganda was rife. Topcliffe also intended to make use of the issue of equivocation. Suttle was brought before Sir John Popham, Chief Justice of the King's Bench, on a charge of treason. The Attorney General, Sir Edward Coke, was the prosecutor, and Topcliffe himself and Anne Bellamy were witnesses for the prosecution. Robert pleaded not guilty of any treason. He protested against a jury being sworn because he didn't want his death to be on their heads. A guilty verdict was always expected. Robert only wished to use the trial to gain sympathy for his cause. Edward Coke began with a tirade against Catholicism, the Pope and Jesuits. Robert tried to interrupt, but he was too weak from his long confinement and the effects of his tortures. Topcliffe knew that Robert could not prove he was tortured, since his infernal invention left no marks. The wretched Anne Bellamy was called to testify. She told the court that Robert had advised her that if she were asked under oath whether she had seen a priest or no, she might lawfully say no, although she had seen him that same day, keeping in mind this meaning, that she did not see him with intent to betray him. This was a blow to Robert's character. He quickly came back with a challenge to Edward Coke. Suppose that the French king should invade Her Majesty, and that she, which God forfend, should by her enemies be enforced to fly to some private house for her safety, where none knew her being but Mr. Attorney, and that Mr. Attorney's refusal to swear being thereunto urged should be a confession of her being in the house, for I suppose that also if Mr. Attorney in this case should be examined and should refuse to swear that he knoweth that Her Majesty is not there with the intention to tell them, I say, Mr. Attorney, were neither Her Majesty's good subject nor friend. Subtle had won. 
In the end, the only grounds for the charge of treason against Robert was that he was a priest and a Jesuit. The jury came in with the verdict of guilty. Robert could only say, I pray God forgive all them that are any way accessories to my death. Sir John Popham then sentenced Robert Suttle to be hanged, drawn and quartered the following morning at Tyburn. Robert was taken back to Newgate Prison. I paid a last visit to him there and said goodbye to a man I knew to be loyal, sincere and brave. In the morning he was trundled to Tyburn. Crowds gathered on the muddy streets to bid him farewell. At the gallows he made his speech. And lastly, I commend into the hands of Almighty God my own poor soul, that it would please him for his great mercy's sake to confirm and strengthen it with perseverance unto the end of this my last conflict. And this poor body of mine, as it shall please Her Majesty to dispose thereof. The law decreed that traitors were to be cut down while they were still alive, so they could witness their own disemboweling. This time the hangman let Robert swing. I and some of my men kept the butchers away from him, and the hangman pulled on Robert's legs to release him from his agony. No one in the crowd cried traitor when Robert Suddle's head was held high and I shouted for all to hear on that 21st day of February, 1595. I cannot answer for his religion, but I wish to God that my soul may be with his. Retired thoughts enjoy their own delights, as beauty doth in self-beholding eye. Man's mind a mirror is of heavenly sights, a brief wherein all marvels summed lie. Of fairest forms and sweetest shapes the store, most graceful all, yet thought may grace them more. The mind a creature is, yet can create, to nature's patterns adding higher skill. Of finest works, wit better could the state, if force of wit had equal power of will. Devise of man in working hath no end. What thought can think, another thought can mend. Man's soul of endless beauty's image is, drawn by the work of endless skill and might. This skillful might gave many sparks of bliss, and to discern this bliss a native light. To frame God's image as his worth's required, his might, his skill, his word, and will conspired. All that he had his image should present, all that it should present he could afford. To that he could afford his will was bent, his will was followed with performing word. Let this suffice, by this conceive the rest. He should, he could, he would, he did the best. <laughs>